I think the interplay between the two, the thing that bridges them, if you will, is managing uncertainty. Because I think resiliency is a part of managing the uncertainty of risk. Because you probably can define resiliency a, a thousand different ways, but I think fundamentally it's how do you bounce back <laughs> after yep. a setback? This year has been one giant change after another. We've crammed what feels like a whole decade's worth of crisis into just a few short months. And that rapid pace of change and the disruption of just about every system and structure in our society makes it feel like there are risks everywhere all of a sudden. Every weakness in your business has suddenly been brought to the surface. Everything feels like a crisis and you're running around in a frenzy trying to shore up all the holes at once. You've barely managed to process and respond to one crisis before it seems like there's another one just around the corner. The sneaky thing about this, though, is that those risks, those limitations, they were always there. It just took a crisis to make you pay attention. I'm Susan Bowles, and you're listening to Break the Ceiling, the show where we break down unconventional strategies you can use to save time, boost your profit, and increase your operational capacity. Today, we're kicking off a new theme talking about risks and resilience and the relationship between the two, because I believe they're intertwined. When we talk about risk, we're really talking about managing uncertainty. You know, what are the chances that this bad thing over here might actually happen? But we can't know what the chances are. That's the uncertainty piece. And as humans, we are literally hardwired to hate uncertainty. It stresses us out and it makes us feel unsafe. Our brains evolved to analyze and to predict what's going to happen next. So all day long, we just go around predicting what the next thing will be so that we can make decisions about what to do. When change comes along, it's something new. And because we have no experience with it, we can't predict what will happen. And that stresses us out. There was a research study done a few years ago that basically found that humans would rather know for sure that something bad was definitely going to happen than to be uncertain about the outcome. And really, we can never know for certain what will happen next. But identifying and addressing risks means that you can come up with a plan for what you can do to reduce the impact of that risk if it actually happens. Or you can create structures in your business that means that it can be more flexible and responsive and resilient. You can never really completely eliminate risk. It's something that you just have to live with, but risk doesn't have to consume you. Identifying and addressing risks in your business is one of the main ways you build resilience into it because you can't fix what you can't see. And if you don't understand what's most likely to break, it's pretty hard to create that trampoline of resilience right where and when you need it most. That's what building resilience into your business really means. You're building systems and structures that can respond to and rebound from whatever you throw at it, even if it's a risk or a crisis that you never saw coming. When I originally conceived of the series talking about risk, it was way back at the beginning of May, you know, like three years ago in 2020 time. But it feels like a conversation we need more now than ever. No one, no matter what they tell you, knows what's going to happen next. We don't know how our society, our government, the economy, or our businesses will change. All we can do is examine the risks 
and do our damnedest to build something better and stronger and something built for change. Now, this series is mostly focused on financial risks in your business because, well, that's a lot of what I talk about here on the show. But risk in your business isn't limited to just your money or your cash reserves. There's operational risk, like having a critical team member leave for another job or to start their own business. Or there's being dependent on a software system or an algorithm that you don't own and that might change at any time. There's founder risk, your own beliefs, habits, preconceptions that inherently change how you do business. We talked about those risks a ton in our last theme on founders getting in their own way. There's economic risk, like how your industry or your clients' industries respond to recessions. And there's social risk, like how much of your own values do you bring into your business and how do you build those values into the DNA of your business or into your marketing and how you're talking about your business. So as you start thinking more about where your risks are, don't limit your examination to just your money. Risk and the opportunity to build resilience lives everywhere. Now, during this series, we'll talk about some specific risks you might have lurking around in the back end of your business. We'll talk about some alternative sources of revenue that might help you pivot and build more resilience into your business model. And I'll talk to a few business owners who've done just that, added new services and products to make their businesses just that much stronger. Today, I'm having a conversation with Jaquette Timmons. Now, Jaquette focuses on the human side of money. She's a financial behaviorist, speaker, the author of Financial Intimacy, and the host of the More Than Money podcast. Jaquette focuses mostly on the personal side of finance, although a lot of her clients are entrepreneurs. And we're going to talk about identifying risks, building resilience, and how they're really two sides of the same coin. Also, just a note before we get started here, a few minutes in, you'll hear a phone in the background of our conversation. We couldn't edit it out, and I didn't want to just cut a whole section because it was such a good part of the conversation. One of my favorite impacts of this whole pandemic, everyone working from home thing, is us seeing the more human, more real side of people. Not just that buttoned up, painted on professional version we put out there. People are real. They have real kids in the background of those Zoom calls now. They're really showing up in their loungewear and not a suit jacket. So in the spirit of accepting folks as being human, hopefully you'll excuse us and our ringing phone. Hi, Jaquette. Hello there, Susan. Thank you so much for having me. So you are a financial behaviorist, which is literally my favorite job title ever. Can you <laughs> tell me a little bit about what that actually like means in practical terms? What do you do? <laughs> Well, what I do is I help people shift their attention from the numbers when it comes to their financial experiences and degrees of financial success to focusing on what I believe contributes the most to that, regardless of where you are on the income or wealth spectrums. And that is your behavior, your choices, the motivations behind them, as well as the emotions behind it all. Because all of that drives what you do, when you do it, how you do it, and why you do it. And I'm just really on a mission to get people to understand those factors. And as they're setting their goals, as they're measuring their results, that they're just not looking at the numbers for the sake of the numbers, but what is 
the insight that they can get behind those numbers as it pertains, again, to their behavior, their choices, motivations, and emotions. So when I'm coaching people, we're diving into that. And when I'm doing um, speaking engagements, whether it's a workshop or, you know, me sitting on a panel with someone or an interview, I'm always going to try to weave in elements so that people will pause for a moment, hopefully, and think about, hmm, what is my behavior? And, and actually not just ask the question of what is my behavior, but what's behind it so that you can really have a greater financial self-awareness so that ultimately you put yourself in a position to make better, smarter choices. I love that. That's, it's an interesting take on, you know, I do very much the same kind of work in that you are using data um, as it pertains to your finances to make better decisions. But this perspective of bringing in the psychological elements, the behavior elements are, it's so critical to being able to make those good decisions. And I think being able to interpret what the data is telling you is all framed in what your background and history and mindset and all of those behaviors that come with money. And it's interesting because I don't think I'd ever really heard it framed that way, but I think that's a, such a valuable perspective of dealing with money in a way that a lot of the traditional like money mindset work feels like it sort of misses a little bit. Yeah. And you know, it's really interesting because two points. One, I think we all quote unquote behave in patterns, right? And so you can't interrupt a pattern that you don't notice. And so in order to understand the behavior, in order to isolate what the pattern is, you've got to collect the data. And so for me, the numbers are a way of making the elements that on the surface may appear to be intangible and perhaps quote unquote subjective to give them an objective lens to it. With regards to the mindset piece, you know, part of my challenge with some of the mindset um, discussions out there is it, it, it plants the seed that makes you think that if I just think differently, well, then things will be different. And mm. Um, from my experience and from observation, you can't think your way through to another side of something. I think your mindset does, in fact, it, it affect things. It affects what you do, but you've got to take some action. And I love the um, Quaker proverb that says, when you pray, move your feet. And, you know, you look at any religion, there's probably some version of that in terms of a proverb, but it's like, okay, you can think something and you can have an idea of what you, how you want something to be different, but you then have to back that up with some action. So what are you changing in terms of your behavior to make it so? Mm, I like that. <laughs> being able to kind of operationalize the changes that you wish you could think your way out of figuring out what actions can you take to actually make that real. Exactly. The theme we're talking about here is really thinking about risk, thinking about how that relates to resilience. So tell me a little bit about how you think about risk. How do you approach risk? So before I, I talk about how I approach risk, I, I would love to just say one of the things that I think we tend to do as a culture, and that is have a very limited conversation about risk. 
we tend to talk about it almost exclusively through the lens of what we might potentially lose. Mm. And that is an important thing to be mindful of. Um, but on the flip side, there's the risk in terms of the opportunity that you don't take or the opportunity cost, right? So if we think of it from an investment standpoint, so yeah, if you invest in the stock market, there's the risk that you might lose money, but the opportunity cost, the risk on the other side is if you don't invest in the stock market, then you're missing out on the growth and the appreciation and the ability to hopefully outpace inflation. And similarly, when it comes to business, you know, there's the risk of if you do something, it might fail. But on the opposite side, there is the risk of if you don't do it, you won't know what's possible. You won't know what you might be able to achieve. You won't know um, what goal that might be a stretch goal that you might be able to hit. So um, I think we also, as we think about what might be lost, we also have to think about the other side of that, which is what are we then losing out on if we don't do something? And in terms of how I approach risk, I also think it's really important to think, to think of risk, uh, to contextualize risk. Um, and you, know, you and I are having this conversation at a very tender moment <laughs> in time, right? Um, and you know, as a, a black person of Jamaican and uh, you know Jamaican American descent, this is a really disheartening time for me, dispiriting time, and scary time, right? And the risk from a business standpoint is if I let that just completely shut me down and don't move forward. Right. So mm -hmm. there's the risk there. And there's also the risk in terms of figuring out, well, how do you actually balance acknowledging what's going on? And yet at the same time, you know, your business is your livelihood. And yet at the same time, doing the things that you need to do to market your services, promote your services, let people know what you're doing. And so my point there is, that there is no one size fits all when it comes to risk in terms of what's a risky choice for you. And I don't mean you personally, but the bigger you, you know, what's the risky choice for you versus what's the risky choice for me? Because that, that can look very different. Like we can both be faced with the same choice and to you, it might not be risky. And for me, it might and vice versa. So for me, that's how I think about risk. I, I, I always want to make sure that I'm looking at the both sides of it, if you will, from the terms of what could potentially be lost and what's the potential opportunity cost and how am I contextualizing the, the choice or the decision that I am contemplating that I am attaching some risk to. So... I love the idea of contextualizing risk, kind of the positive versus the, the opportunity cost versus, you know, what are you missing out on? What could possibly happen? And I think for me, I have the, when I think about risk, I have a real negative reaction to it, which I think a lot of people do. People are uncomfortable with assessing their risk, right? They're uncomfortable talking about, um, the potential losses. And I tend to look at risk both from a financial perspective, but also from an operational perspective as well. So we have not just the, um, not, the not just the financial, not just the social risk, but also the operational risk. Things like 
you know, are you, is your, uh, are your systems dependent on a platform that you don't own that could go out of business that could, you know, that could just disappear one day and take a critical part of your infrastructure with you? Or do you have a team member that is a critical team member that when they decide to move on to another opportunity affects your operations? And I think that is kind of a third piece of this puzzle here where every, every time you assess a risk, there are so many facets of that. And when I'm evaluating risk, I'm actually looking for opportunities. To me, risk is intertwined with resilience because you look at risks, um, you examine risks, you dig into those limitations to be able to build resilience. All of those aspects, assessing all of those aspects, build resilience, um, not just into your business, but into your mindset, into the ability to kind of um, bounce back from situations. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, it totally, it totally <laughs> makes sense. And I think, you know, what you have just shared really kind of also um, invites us to zoom out and make sure that we are taking the time to define the risk that we are contemplating or that we are measuring because there's financial risk, there's, as you said, operational risk, there is, you know, depending upon what your business is and what it is you might choose to do, there could potentially be brand risk, mm -hmm. um, reputational risk. Yeah, so, for sure. you know, I think it is an invitation to a, define the risk. I think the other thing is that, you know, when it comes to risk, inherent in anything that we are going to quote unquote say there's a risk element to it, it means that there are some aspect of it that we lack some certainty about. And I think the challenging thing is that as a culture, we tend to want to prioritize certainty over clarity. And I think we're better served when we served when we prioritize clarity over certainty. So well, that I love that regardless phrase. of what the outcome <laughs> I love that. I tell people that all the time when it comes to money, because I think far too often, you know, like here's a really concrete example that may seem, um, you know, uh, what's the word? Not significant in the moment, but I think it speaks to a lot. So you ask someone how much they want to save and you don't put any boundaries on it, right? You tell people not based upon how much you can do or how much you have planned to do, but you know, I, I'll give you a magic wand. How much money would you want to save? And some people are completely frozen and they cannot come up with an answer because they're not accustomed to having a blank piece of paper where they can write down any number. And mm -hmm. why is that? The why often is because they're looking for the certainty in the number. They're looking for the certainty and having the ability, ability to meet that number as opposed to write down a number. It can be wrong. You can change it. But if you don't write it down, how are you then going to come up with a game plan? Like, you know, if, if you just say to yourself, I want to save more, what's your game plan for that? How do you know when you're making progress about it? And the short answer is yeah. you don't. You don't. <laughs> like you, you know, you're just, I mean, 
<laughs> I yeah. love the, so like I the context of having to... a real clear, like being so clear about why you're doing it and just really yeah. taking a risk to throw a number out there. <laughs> Start someplace. Yeah, exactly. 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 And I think the other thing is if you, if you take the time to pause and to, you know, inquire about, you know, well, what, what is the risk that I think is, is unfolding in front of me and where am I looking for certainty and how can I replace that with clarity? I think what that also then does is it gives us a chance to um, examine our relationship with risk and look at those instances where we feel comfortable being risky and those instances where we kind of shy away from it and understand that there, again, there is no right or wrong, but understand what is it about those instances where you feel comfortable? What's the context? Like what are the, what's the ecosystem that's kind of supporting that? And what's missing when you think about the ecosystem for those instances where you don't feel comfortable taking a risk? Mm. Can you give me kind of an example um, that you've seen of that kind of analysis of where you might feel comfortable or where, I guess, kind of walk, walk me through the process you would go through to figure out, you know, why, yeah, where are you comfortable? Where are you not? Sure. Now, and I'll, I, I will use a personal example. So, you know, before we pressed record, I shared with you where I live. I live in Brooklyn. Um, I live in a Tony neighborhood, Park Slope, love my place, um, but I don't own it. Right. I, I live in a beautiful brownstone. I love my apartment, but I don't own it. And there was a period of time, and this is going back um, like in the early 2000s, when all of my friends were either buying full on brownstones or buying apartments. And I'm like, man, maybe I'm missing out. Maybe I should do that. And, you know, two things. I started looking and then I realized that, you know, none of the places that I was looking at that I could afford, none of them would fit my current apartment in it. Like I couldn't just transport my current apartment into it, right? I'd have to let a whole bunch of things go that I don't want to let go. <laughs> um, but the bigger issue was that I didn't do it because as an entrepreneur, I didn't feel the financial confidence of what comes with the responsibility of, especially if you own a full brownstone, that's a whole different ball game than owning an apartment. But either way, that adds on a whole nother dimension in terms of financial responsibility. So on that regard, I wasn't very risky. But in terms of being an entrepreneur, that inherently is risky. But the piece where I chose to not be risky is the fact that I've been in my apartment for, I don't know how many years, over 20 years, I think, um, the same apartment, which means that I have been able to take risks from an entrepreneurial standpoint that I wouldn't have been able to take or that I probably wouldn't have felt comfortable taking if I had the responsibility that goes with home ownership that I, was felt, that I felt comfortable taking renting an apartment if that makes any sense. Yeah. So you traded some kind of, uh, you traded personal, assessing your personal risk against being able to have the flexibility and freedom to be able to take risks in your business because exactly. of other choices that you've made. Exactly. That totally makes sense. Yep. 
So kind of turning it around a little bit, how do you see kind of the relationship between risk and resilience playing out? You know, what does resiliency look like to you or how does, what does that mean to you? Well, I think the interplay between the two, you know, the thing that's, that bridges them, if you will, is managing uncertainty because I think resiliency is a part of managing the uncertainty of risk because, you know, you probably can define resiliency a a thousand different ways, but I think fundamentally it's how do you bounce back (laughs) after a setback, right? Um, And so that's, if, if, if I think of it as a triangle, it's like risk, resiliency, and uncertainty are, you know, the, the, one of the three different uh, angles, if you will. And you're always trying to figure out where you need to put a little bit more uh, pressure. And when I say pressure, more attention so that you are managing it. So for me, that's where the resiliency piece comes in. I like the, I like the picture of a triangle. Um, and the interplay, because, you know, I don't think there's ever really an opportunity for us to be certain about mm-hmm. anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm exactly. trying to come up with a good example where you could be absolutely certain of the outcome. And I'm not sure that there is. Um, yeah. But how, how you manage uncertainty, how you approach uncertainty in a general sense really impacts how willing you are to take risks. And I think the more mm-hmm. willing you are to take risks and to address your uncertainty is the, that's how you become a more resilient organization kind of full stop. Yeah. And I think, you know, the way that this kind of ties into what I understand about your body of work, the connection there also is What's the process that you follow for the decisions that you make, right? What's your decision matrix? Like, how do you get to your, the ultimate decisions that you make, whether they're short-term or long-term or they're bridge decisions? And the, the more comfortable you are with your process, the less I think you have to worry about if you get something right or if you get something wrong. Mm. Because you know that if you got it right, that's great. If you got it wrong, that's great. It may feel sucky. <laughs> I'm not going to deny that. <laughs> However, if you followed your process, the, the point is that if, if it didn't work out the way that you wanted it to, somewhere in there is feedback. And in that feedback is what you can perhaps do differently the next time. But you can only look at that if you're following a process. Yes, exactly. And, you know, for me, I tend to use data to Mm -hmm. manage uncertainty, to um, bring in that feedback. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, my my default is always, you know, what does the data say? Like, what, what is, um, what does the actual, what do the actual numbers say instead of what does your gut say about what happened? And I think, you know, for me, that's my approach to doing the best to manage uncertainty. And that's, that is my process. And I think that having a process, like you said, is the most important part. Maybe your process is data. Maybe your process is um, like a hot wash with your team after what, after Mm -hmm. something happens. Maybe your process is, you know, looking at the 
execution goals that you set. You know, when you went out to launch a project or try something new, you know, what process did you set around making sure that you were doing the things that you needed to do to right. give that thing a, a, you know, a chance to succeed? Or did right. you personally muck it up with your own behavior and not do the things that you knew needed to happen? Right. Yeah, exactly. And that's where I think, you know, tracking, however you do it, comes into play. You know, I often um, ask my clients to track their money and some people are resistant to it because they think that I'm asking them to do it to create a budget, whether it's, you know, budget around your money or budget around your time. I think people are like, ah, I don't want to do that. And my whole thing is um, the tracking, again, goes back to collecting the data, which allows you to see the pattern. And it, it tells a story, right? And so the more comfortable you are with tracking, the, the better you are at understanding what the story is. And then here's the real, I think, come to Jesus moment. Sometimes when you're tracking, you will realize that you are not doing what you think you're doing. Mm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's always a hard one to swallow, though. And you're like, oh, oh my God, totally. totally. I, didn't, I didn't do that thing. That was, that was on me. <laughs> like in your head, you've done all the things, right? <laughs> in your head, you did all the things, you did them all right. And yet, <laughs> when you then go back and you look at the tracking, you're like, oh, yeah, kind of missed it, Mark, there. Yes. I have to say, one of, um, I had a coach that, started kind of a weekly review process where at the end of every week you are, you know, doing some reflection questions. Mm -hmm. And the goal is really to start seeing consistent data um, about your business, about what's going well, what's not going well. And one of the things that always gets me every week is that you have to actually list out what your sales were. And then you mm -hmm. have to list out all of the opportunities, basically all the offers that you put out there, all those conversion opportunities. And that's always mm. the one that gets me where I'm like, oh, I, right. Yep. That's, that's yep. why that didn't happen is right. I didn't actually ask anybody to buy anything from me. Right. <laughs> uh, but I think that's one yes. of those, like, it's a very simple routine. It's a very simple system that gives me feedback every week of this is something that matters and whether or not I'm actually behaving in the way that I know will grow my business. Yes, absolutely. I, I think people undervalue the power of simplicity, simplicity um, unfortunately, because <laughs> I think sometimes a lot of profundity comes from those things that are quote unquote simple and that we might be dismissive of. Yes. And I think there's so much, when we approach the concept of kind of getting data around your business, People mm -hmm. think that that has to be really complicated analytical data. Like you have to run um, giant complicated spreadsheets and charts right. and, and graphs. And the truth mm -hmm. is that the, I, at least in my experience, the most powerful data I've ever gotten about my business is super simple stuff. Um, mm -hmm. Things like, did you offer to, you know, did you make an offer to anybody this week? Or, right. you know, are the products that you're selling profitable? Like right. those are really simple mm -hmm. pieces of data that can be very powerfully used to mm -hmm. um, identify opportunities for resilience, but also opportunities 
for, you know, addressing risk. Those are places where risk kind of starts showing itself, I think. Right. Because it's, it's, especially if you think about, you know, did you ask, did you, did you, did you make the risk or did you take the risk to ask for the sale? So you had a discovery call or some might call it a diagnostic call or, or whatever. And it was a complimentary one. Did you ask for the sale in that call or did you just have a lovely chat? Yeah. I think this is, we are, I think, ex- making a perfect example of why it's really helpful to work with a coach. Mm-hmm. or some kind of external system because sometimes it's really easy to fool ourselves that right. we're doing the work that needs to be done and just having someone else come in and not necessarily hold you accountable but hold you accountable to be doing the things that you say you value that you have identified as being important to you. Yeah, and and, and I think the value of working with a coach is you know, hearing the voice of someone else ask you the question so that you can hear your own voice answer it. Mm. So taking all of these, you know, what do you see kind of being the biggest risks or challenges in personal finance, either right now or just kind of in general? I think the biggest risk is just not being engaged and not, you know, paying attention. Um, And, you know, here's a really, well, I think it's a really good example. So, you know, I've got three pillars to my business, right? Coaching, for hire speaking, and then I also host events. For my for hire speaking prior to uh, COVID, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I I was doing a lot of traveling. um, And a key part of uh, my client base there are law firms. And last November, for one of my law firm clients, they had an off-site retreat for their women partners and attorneys, and I delivered my signature talk, and I also did 16 one-on-one coaching sessions. And the predominant response for all, if not almost all, of, of the coaching session folks was that they work really, really long hours. And when they come home, all they want to do is grab a glass of wine or whatever their beverage is and watch Netflix. They do not want to focus on their money. Mm. There's a cost to doing that. I understand it. I understand the fact that when you come home, that's the last thing that you want to do. But again, if you think about the compounding effect of our behavior, of our choices, (laughs) um, there is the, the strong possibility then that you won't meet your goals, whether they're short-term or long-term, that you will end up, and in most of their cases, it's never an issue of necessarily living month to month or paycheck to paycheck, but you can still, even when you have a lot of money and a lot of cash flow, you can still find yourself in a situation where you are spending unintentionally or not very strategically. And so you won't know that if you are not engaged and paying attention to your money. You won't also be in a position to perhaps quickly pivot if something happens and you now need to readjust how you are actually spending your money or any other kind of financial decisions. You won't know A, what you need to do and B, how to do it because you haven't been engaged. So your money is on the back burner and it stays there 
unless an emergency happens or a big transaction needs to be made or decision needs to be made. But that's not when you want to then begin, begin to be engaged with your money, right? Because you then lose out on the ability to um, be strategic in that process. So I think the biggest, you know, the risk and the challenge, although some people might not think of that as a risk, is not being engaged and, and, and not paying attention to your money and, and thinking that I work too much or I work too hard, which I'm sure a lot of people can relate to, especially given the dynamics of how people are living, working, and socializing right now. But that's not an excuse because you end up paying the ultimate price for that. Again, if you think about the compounding of year after year, you're not paying attention to what's going on. Um, and then that leads me to another piece, which is you're, you're reactionary. So you, you know, are always making a decision, shooting from the hip and not really thinking about not only what are the short-term ramifications of something, but what are the long-term implications? And then um, finally, I think the risk is being abstract. And I kind of alluded to this at the top of our conversation, you know, when people will say, I just want to save more, or if they've got debt, they'll just say, I want to get out of debt. When, and to me, those are abstract, where to me, you, you are better served if, even if you don't have the number precise if you say, I want to save X amount of money in a certain amount of time, or, you know, this is my total debt. This is how much of it I want to chip away this year. So I think the biggest challenge is, is that people don't recognize not being engaged as a risk. They don't recognize that being reactionary almost exclusively. They don't look at that as a risk and they don't really see how um, the lack of clarity is also a risk. I absolutely wholeheartedly second that in that, you know, I think a lot of business owners are intimidated by their finances. It's an area where people feel a real lack of confidence. Even people that have done a lot of work around money, have a good understanding of it. Everybody always kind of feels like they're not doing enough or they're not doing it well enough. And there's the whole spectrum of, I have, you know, done a lot of research and I, I feel sort of comfortable, but know that I'm not taking advantage all the way back down to, I don't want to look at my finances because I am scared. I don't understand it. I don't feel comfortable. Um, I don't want to talk to anybody. And I just want to put my head in the sand and ignore it. And I think you are so right in that there is a real risk associated with not having a good understanding of your finances. And I think that's why systems like Profit First end up being so powerful for some people is because it's a system that kind of forces you to be at least every once in a while looking at your finances, understanding what's going on, understanding what's coming in and what's going out, even if it's just at a basic level, that can really be very useful, very empowering data for folks who have previously kind of just let it slide or ignored it. Yeah. And, you know, I think the other risk that what you've just described speaks to is the risk of not setting yourself up, not setting your business model, your sales process and your pricing strategy and approach up in a way so that your business supports you personally. Hmm. I think far too often the presumption is if you, if, 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 if you even indeed pay yourself, that if it's doing that, then you are okay. And that may be true for a period of time, 
but why should it just, why should your life be just okay? Right. <laughs> and so well, why not have a, a business that is not only, you know, designed for it to achieve its financial success, but so that the health of your personal finances are integrated into that equation as well. And when I say the health of your personal finances, not just your ability to pay your bills, like your ability to do that, of course, but also what about your own personal financial goals, short-term and long-term and aspirations and all of that, is that inherently built in? And while I don't know all of the details of the profit first system, I know enough about it. And I think what is really um, can be eye-opening for people practicing that is to see how the price, to see what portion of the price that they charge ultimately comes to them personally, which then yes. ultimately helps to fuel their financial lives. That, that, that exercise alone will probably shock the heck out of you and make you think, oh, wow, I really need to think about my pricing. <laughs> yes. I, I think you're right. You know, I've had so many people that are like, oh, I finally, you know, I finally set up profit first and oh my gosh. You know, and that's the reaction. And I think it's, I think you're right. I think it's that touch point of you see exactly where your money is coming into and you mm -hmm. kind of have to be more explicit about your priorities in terms of how you spend that money. And right. it is very easy as a business owner to sacrifice your mm -hmm. personal financial well-being Mm -hmm. for the good of your business because we all love exactly. our businesses like we all got into our business because we wanted to that was mm -hmm. something we wanted to do as a priority mm -hmm. that we had and yep. oftentimes we really forget how intertwined it is with our personal finances and then you get into the situation where you are subsidizing your business with your personal and you can only exactly. do that for so long exactly exactly and i am on a mission so thank you for opening the door for me to share it i am on a mission to really interrupt the narrative that says that we forevermore need to give our businesses everything including our financial futures that may be a requirement in the very beginning or at, you know some points and in our businesses history just because of circumstances but we need to have a process, the, the stopgap measure in place to ensure that that doesn't become the default that we don't even realize we're, we're continuing to operate in. Yes. Yes. <laughs> oh. I'm so, I am so passionate. I'm so excited that that is your platform because I think it's so important and it so mm -hmm. often gets missed. You know, we get excited yes. about our business. We want to do everything that we can to make sure that it succeeds. And mm -hmm. sometimes it's just a little bit at a time. We don't realize that it's happening. You know, maybe we just have a temporary cash crisis and we like, oh, I'll just, I'll just stop my payroll just for this month. No big deal. Um, mm -hmm. you know, I'll turn it on next month when things are better. And mm -hmm. all of a sudden, you know, six months down the road, you haven't taken a salary. You haven't paid yourself mm -hmm. and you forgot that that you forgot that you made a conscious choice about it that just becomes kind right. of the standard exactly exactly yeah <laughs> so we kind of we, we talked about a whole bunch of stuff in here um but is there anything that you think we should talk about 
um, either with regard to risk, resilience, anything around the topics we've talked about that you think we should talk about and we haven't touched on yet? Yeah. So, you know, when we, when we talk about um, risk, resiliency, and uncertainty, those tend to become really illuminated when there is a crisis. Mm. And we all know that, you know, everybody, the degree to which people were impacted obviously varies, but everybody was impacted, right? No matter where you live in the world at this point. Um, but, you know, certainly here in the U.S., no matter where it is that you live, your life in some way has been interrupted and it has been impacted. And so that, that's, this is an example of a collective crisis. And again, risk, resiliency, and uncertainty, the degree to which you are exposed in any of those areas shows up when there is a crisis. But here's the thing. That's a collective crisis. What we're going through is a collective crisis. We've gone through them before. And sadly, we don't know when it will happen, but we will go through another collective crisis. But guess what? We also go through crises on our own personal levels, whether it's in our personal lives or in our business. And I share that as a way of reminding people that you have a toolkit for managing even this crisis that we're in now. We don't know how long we will be in it. You have a toolkit. You may need to refresh it. You may need to add some things to it. But don't lose sight of the fact that you've dealt with a crisis before you can deal with this one, and this will just prepare you to deal with the next one. And so in terms of you know, the theme of the conversation, pause for a moment and think about when this crisis really hit its apex. What did you learn about yourself in terms of where were you most vulnerable? Where was the risk exposed? Where was the uncertainty experienced? Where was the, um, where did you discover your resiliency, right? Because to me, the resiliency also comes into play from the standpoint of asking, you know, where can I be more resourceful? So where did you find yourself bumped up against the uncertainty and the risk, but that helped you to, you know, double down into asking yourself, where can you be more resourceful? Where can you be more creative? And what did you create as a result of that? And so I think that's the, you know, the, the last piece that I would just like to chat about is that the crisis always illuminates that, but it also gives you ideas around how to handle it, not only now, but when the next one comes around, whether it's a collective crisis or one that's more experienced on an individual basis, whether it's in your personal life or in your business. Yeah, I think you're right. I think so many people, I mean, even the most financially savvy people. I don't think ever, you know, did their cash forecasts to assume that the economy grinds to a complete halt. Like nobody, nobody ever predicted that. Um, And so I think this is a little bit unprecedented in that Mm -hmm. you can, I mean, not a little bit, it was Mm -hmm. (laughs) in Mm -hmm. that, you know, everything stops, but I think it was also such an opportunity to really look at not just, you know, how is your business structured and where is their risk there, but also an opportunity to look at the relationship of your business to your life. You know, that's a point that you brought up earlier. Uh And this was unique in that it not just forced the economy to stop, but forced us to stop and to take a breath and look at what we were spending our time on, look where we were spending our money, look at, 
you know, values that might have been lost somewhere along the road mm -hmm. and use this as an opportunity. Um, somebody in a group early on kind of in this mentioned that they kind of were thinking about this as, you know, you were, you're building a puzzle and all the pieces get knocked on the floor and you get to pick which pieces you pick up. And mm -hmm. I love that analogy because it, I do too. to me, it is so empowering that yes. you get to, you get to choose what you take out of this and you get to choose how you rebuild your business. What, what do you bring in? What do you decide to do in a new way? What do you decide mm -hmm. to leave behind? Mm -hmm. And I think this is unique and that we have, there's just so many facets of it. You know, yes. there's an economic crisis, there's a social crisis, there is um, this recognition of institutional systems that mm -hmm. we had depended on, things like schools, that I don't mm -hmm. think anybody ever anticipated schools just kind of not existing. You know, again, right. nobody predicted that. But what right. does that now mean in terms of assessing the things that are important to us and mm -hmm. rebuilding our business in a way that is better? Right. Better for our lives, better for our business, more resilient. Um, there were a lot of things exposed, I think, um, about everybody's business in terms of where they weren't resilient or where they were unprepared. You know, I think an example is just in terms of what people expected as kind of a standard cash cushion. You know, where do you mm -hmm. think the a good security you know, a good security blanket cash wise is for right. you. And I think this is something where before this, it had been a, a pretty long time before, since a lot of people had kind of experienced a huge catastrophic cash crisis on mm -hmm. this kind of a level. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that, you know, that colored our, our perspectives of what, a cash, what a good cash cushion would be. And right. I think, you know, coming out of this, a lot of people have seen that that just wasn't enough and maybe mm -hmm. you never need it again, but this kind of illumination of where that risk lies is for certain going to color where you, when you, you know, your perspective on what feels secure to you. And I think right. that's a, that's a definitely a moving benchmark for everybody is like, what's the number that like feels good, feels secure to you. Um, but I know for me, at least personally, my new level of security is much higher now than it was before. Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> and again, I think it goes back to context, right? <laughs> you know, your circumstances, probably your personal circumstances, your business circumstances, the context of all of that is probably driving what that new number is. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Yeah. And I, th I think it is for, I mean, for all of my clients, for people that I'm oh, talking yeah, to, for I'm, here, I'm sure you're seeing it too. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's also, you know, I really, I, I don't know what language um, ought to replace it, but I do dislike this whole notion of going back to normal because perhaps that's, I know on a number of different levels that that, that don't work. <laughs> We actually don't want to go back to what was normal. Um, and so I think this kind of illuminates that as well. Like, how are you defining what is normal for you and what is normal for your business? Yes. And what do you want it to be going forward? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, totally. You get to define that. You get to shape it. I love the kind of 
the imagery of just, I think this is an opportunity for us to all give ourselves permission to think about it differently, to be open to new ways of doing business or new perspectives that allow us to create something new and better. And like you, yeah. I don't, I don't want to go back to what was normal. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what, I don't know that we know what we're going to, but I hope that it is something that was better than <laughs> what we had before. Right. Exactly. It's certainly going to be different. Well, it's going to be different, but I think that that's the power to me. That is why I think choice is such a powerful thing, right? Because you, you can stand in your power in terms of not only defining what's possible, but also then in terms of figuring out what is your particular pathway to that thing that you want to be possible. Mm. You get to define that. You get to, you, get to, you get to choose so many different aspects of that. And let's, let, let me be really clear here. You may not be able to control all of the aspects of it, but you get to choose. Yes. All right. I think that is a perfect place to wrap it up. Um, so where can our listeners find you if they want to connect or learn more about what you do? My website is a really great place to go, jacquettetimmons.com. And if you go to jacquettetimmons.com forward slash wheel, you can download a free exercise called the financial wheel, which is really beneficial in terms of helping you to, um, understand your relationship with money and your personal finances, but also to use that as a way of understanding what it is that your business needs to do in order to help you fulfill your financial vision. And then on social media, while I am on all of the platforms, I love me some Instagram. So come follow me on Instagram. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here and for having this conversation with me. I think this was um, just freaking interesting. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for the invitation. It was purely a delight and I uh, really appreciate the chance to be here. Thank you. Eons ago, you know, back in March, right after the coronavirus craziness kicked off, I was on a call with a friend and she asked me what I was doing differently with my clients in response to what was happening. All the panic around PPP loans and stay-at-home orders and homeschooling. She wanted to know what I was counseling my clients on now. How were we handling the cash flow crisis now? How were we building resiliency into their business now? And my answer to her was nothing, because there was nothing that needed to be done differently now. We were already talking about limiting risk by creating different revenue streams. We were already looking at how profitable each service or product was, so we could cut what wasn't working and double down on what was. We were already making sure that every dollar spent in the business was being used as effectively as possible. And we were already creating a team structure and using technology to build resilient operations. We'd already done the work to fortify the foundations of their business and build resiliency into their DNA. So when the shit hit the fan, we were all suddenly working from home with other people in our spaces. We were homeschooling our kids and reeling from trying to figure out what was happening in the world. For lots of businesses, that felt like running full speed into a brick wall. For most of my clients, it was more of a speed bump. Sure, they had to adjust, just like everybody else did, but their businesses kept running. 
operations didn't stop because they suddenly had half as much time to work on their business or because they didn't have the brain bandwidth to deal with it right now. We'd already put systems in place to make sure the trains kept running. And yeah, we had to touch base and look at our plan and decide, you know, if or where we needed to make adjustments. But that's the same discussion we always had because we were already proactively looking for ways to operate more efficiently and effectively. Sure, the cause for the discussion was different, but the process to react to it was the same. We looked at the plan, we adjusted where we needed to, and we kept on trucking. That's what resiliency looks like in real life when you've built it into the foundation of your business. And the way you get there is to start by identifying your risks. While Jaquette and I mostly talked about financial risks because, well, we're both finance geeks, this conversation was really intended to get you thinking about where risk might live in your business, not just in your finances, but everywhere. So start looking for those cracks in your business so you can start shining a light in there, examining them, and start taking some steps to fortify against those risks that you find so that you can move towards resilience. Next week, we're talking a little bit more about financial risks, and we're digging into the risk of inconsistent cash flow. So how do you manage your cash, particularly the balance between your personal cash and your business cash, when the cash coming in might not be as regular as the cash going out? So hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player so you don't miss it. And if you're looking for some support around identifying your risks and taking steps toward building resilience into your business, I'd love to work with you. Head to scalespark.co to book a call or shoot me an email at susan at scalespark.co. Break the Ceiling is produced by Yellow House Media. Our production coordinator is Sean McMullen. This episode was edited by Marty Seafeld with production assistance by Kristen Rundbeck.